Hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. My name is Niall and today we'll be looking at Song of Hope by Thomas Hardy. It's going to be a short one today because I'm just really not prepared. I am such an amateur this week. I'm not the most knowledgeable person about Thomas Hardy or his poetry. I've been cramming a little bit here and there. But it has been a busy week, people. We've had this little thing called a general election in the UK. And um, one reason why I've picked this particular poem was because of the mood that was pervading the country. Um, whether Song of Hope is... Let's, let's, I'm not going to go into detail. I don't, think it, I don't think it takes too much to know that I'm, I'm a bit of a dirty socialist. So I'm, I'm not in the best of moods about the result. But at the same time... I'm kind of a pragmatist and I'm still someone who can at least try and appreciate the things that I have in life. So I'm not going to, you know, go completely like start crying and stuff like that. You know, that's democracy. I respect democracy. But I thought it would be interesting to, I, I don't know why, I just thought let's let's look up a poem about hope. So I looked for a few poems about hope and, and the one I landed on was Song of Hope by Thomas Hardy, which I, I, did, I ended up thinking I'm going to go with this one for a few reasons that I'll go into in a little while. But... Yeah. Now, whether whether the hope is perhaps if you are in England and perhaps if you were emotionally invested one way or the other in the general election and the effects that will be brought into, you know, you know, including Brexit that, that will happen because of a general election. Um, I don't know why. I thought maybe if I uh, maybe the poem will appeal to everyone, if you know what I mean, because some people are feeling hopeful, maybe because. Maybe because the party, they wanted Boris to get in. They wanted the party, the Conservatives to get in. Maybe they, they want Brexit and uh, they're hopeful things will be good after that. Fair enough. If that's your hope, that's your hope. Um, whereas people on the other side of things who possibly aren't big fans of Boris and maybe don't want to leave the EU in a big hurry um, even or even at all. Some of, us, some of us, because I count myself as one of these people, a bit of a socialist, and I'd rather stay in the EU. If you, if you disagree with that, that is absolutely fine. More power to your elbow, sunshine. But for me, yeah, I felt, me, me and my wife and, 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 and the people in my social media bubble, we didn't feel great. We didn't feel great at all. So it could be, you know, it's a poem about hope for, for, for us as well. Maybe, maybe we can all unite around the idea of hope in one way or another. I don't know. Now, I told you, I told you I wasn't really that ready for this podcast. I wasn't very well prepared. So I'm going to give a brief overview of Hardy and his life and his work. Then we're going to read the poem. Then we're going to analyse the poem. And then, of course, we're going to wander off on one. I'll probably have more to wander off on one about this week than anything else. But let's look at a quick timeline of Thomas Hardy. So Thomas Hardy, you probably know more as a novelist, a novelist of, of not just the Victorian era, but I think the eras afterwards, the Georgian era. Um, he lived from 1842, 1840, sorry, to, he lived from 1840 to 1928. So he spanned quite, you know, he lived a good, good long life for a start, and he, he spanned quite a few different epochs and eras. And his poetry was a big influence on modernist poets and a lot of modernist and Georgian poets actually used to, to go and visit him. He lived in, in the southwest. I think he lived in Cornwall a lot of his life. He was born in Dorset, which is sort of next to Devon, which is next to Cornwall. So he was out west in the, in the sort of more rural areas. I think he spent a bit of time in London, but he didn't like London. Um, he was also the son of a stonemason. 
And so he came from a working class background, I guess. And his mum was um, very a very educated and well-read woman. So I think she was the one who instilled this, perhaps, this love of literature and learning. So he didn't go to university. He left school, I think, at 16. And then he trained as an architect um, and as a draftsman. And he became a jobbing architect in the first part of his life. But he was a novelist as well. He wrote his four, first novel, The Poor Man and the Lady. That was rejected. And he carried on. Now, now it's, it's worth saying this, that, that Hardy considered himself more of a poet than a novelist during his lifetime. So it could be that... Um, it, one reason why is, is actually because his poetry was better received than his novels. So his famous novels now, which are obviously seen as classic works of literature now, such as Far From the Madding Crowd and Tess of the D'Urbervilles and Jude the Obscure, a lot of his novels did not go down well um, in, in their day. Perhaps they were too bleak, perhaps they were too gloomy, but they were also quite shocking. Um, Jude the Obscure deals with... Um, sex outside of marriage for instance two people eloping and having a relationship outside of marriage and the and the judgment that they face because of it so he was controversial as well whereas his his poetry seemed to go down um a lot better so yeah so so he was more celebrated as a poet but obviously he's now more celebrated as as a poet and as a um and as a and as a novelist as well now as i said his work is seen as quite gloomy quite pessimistic a lot of his poetry was about nature and it was um you know but it was about the sort of darker side of nature i guess the thing that um byron saw as red in tooth and claw hardy was actually more influenced by the romantics he was influenced by the romantics but but more influenced by by wordsworth and you can imagine wordsworth's poetry about nature especially about the lake districts perhaps being of more appeal to someone based in cornwall you know, there's some similarities there in the landscape, I guess, that sort of proper rural out there English countryside rather than the, I don't know, the approximation of it that Keats and others might have found on Hampstead Heath. So much more of a rural poet, wrote about rural concerns, um, a pioneer of the genre of realism in, in novel writing as well, set his novels sort of in these communities in this part of the world too. Um, so he was, you know, he, he, he well, he, he served as a match magistrate. He was um, a justice of the peace. He was celebrated very much later later in life. Also, um, he, um, yeah, as I said, he was visited by other poets as well. He was a big influence on modernists. Ezra Pound was a big fan of his. And we'll look at his poetry now. I feel, I guess, again, quite a quite a small introduction. But the reason why I haven't done much um, research, sorry, I'm sure there's some really really glaring obvious things that i haven't said and i apologize for that if that's the case also i'm just skimming a biography page of a thomas hardy society so you know thomas hardy this author who sort of gazes into the abyss gazes into the merciless qualities of nature gazes into the judgmental aspects of society um the thomas hardy society website right now has got as I'm reading these dates and just like skimming skimming all these dates and skimming all these publication dates and everything like that um, they have a little snowman in the corner because it's nearly Christmas there's a little snowman in the corner of the website and it's got a little snow effect a little so the little snowflakes are cascading down the screen it's very um you know like how the internet was in the sort of I guess the late 90s and the early 2000s before social media <laughs> 
I guess that's it. But I just love this whole whole idea that there's obviously the writer of Jude the Obscure, the writer of some of the, the, the darkest, most dark, soul-searching and sometimes pessimistic literature that we know. And there's a jolly happy snowman and little snowflakes um, cascading down the screen. Oh, I'll tell you one thing I liked about it. He, the love of his life was a woman called Emma. And while he remarried um, after she died... He was always quite heartbroken by her, and that was definitely became a part of his work. But um, um, and um, he always seemed to go with younger ladies, did Mister um, Thomas Hardy as well. But obviously, she was she was definitely the the the, the love of his life, and I like this. Um, his ashes, so he was cremated, and his ashes were interred at Westminster Abbey, I guess in Poets' Corner. But his whole body wasn't cremated. And this was meant to be a bit of a custom. His heart was, was removed from his body. And his heart was buried with his wife, with Emma. I think that's gorgeous. It's gross, but it's gorgeous, isn't it? I think it's fantastic. I don't know. Why, is, why isn't this a practice today? I think everyone should get cremated. But I quite like the idea of our hearts being buried. Why isn't this a thing? I love it. I love it. You could get it like you could get Gunther von Hagen's to to plasticinate your heart, couldn't you? And then like it could just be a toy for your kids. That would be pretty cool. So anyway, um, I think that's genuinely. I think that's the way to go. I'd quite like that idea of having my heart. My brain can be given to science because there must be some anomalies that they're willing to research, and then my heart. Um, I think, yeah, just cremate the rest. Let science take the rest as well. And then, goodness me, I'm going off on one before I before I do the poem. Um, I love the idea of my heart being taken out and buried with, with someone else, probably without their consent. Can you imagine that? Someone's probably been finally died, having got, got shot of me, you know, after having to suffer me my whole life. And then they're basically, oh, go on, go on dig it up again, chuck that in. Okay, let's read the poem. Um, so this is Song of Hope. By Thomas Hardy Song of Hope O oh, sweet tomorrow After today There will away This sense of sorrow Then let us borrow Hope for a gleaming Soon will be streaming Dimmed by no grey No grey While the winds Wing us Sighs from the gone Nearer to dawn Minute beats bring us, when they will sing us, larks of a glory, waiting our story, further anon, anon. Doff the black token, don the red shoon, write and retune, vile strings broken, null the words spoken, in speeches of ruin, the night cloud is hewing, tomorrow shines soon, shines soon that was song of hope by thomas hardy so let's look at the argument of the poem first um stanza by stanza it's it's three short stanzas with very short lines so i guess the first thing we'll say is is that um yeah i've just spoken about thomas hardy as kind of a dark guy, as a pessimist, as someone who's stirred into the void. And here's a very hopeful poem, isn't it? But it's still, I don't know, 
I like hearing stuff like this from pessimists. I've got a lot of time for pessimists. I think I'm going to wander off on one about what's great about pessimism. But before I do wander off on one about what's great about pessimism, I'm going to carry on looking at this poem. So, oh, sweet tomorrow after two day. Um, I don't know why, but there's a hyphen between two and day. And I don't know if that's just Victorians doing what they want or if he's trying to twist the language to say something else as well as what it normally says so after two day so we're going to you know um two day after two day it's like going towards day isn't it sort of after two day i don't know anyway there will away this sense of sorrow then let us borrow hope for a gleaming will so soon will be streaming dimmed by no grey no grey i like this idea of let us let us borrow hope but hope is on the outside it's not really ours so we take it for ourselves for a little while and then we give it back so we borrow hope i can't imagine there's a bank of hope somewhere so yes we borrow hope i like that idea but it's not ours we have to take it from somewhere else we can't find hope within we have to look outside and take it from somewhere and so there's this promise obviously the the you know the, the personification of hope within the dawn within the dawn and the next day the weather being better so while the winds wing us sighs from the gone nearer to dawn minute beats bring us that's a lovely 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 little four lines there so while the winds wing us now there's a nice use of a double pattern here so while the winds wing us and then the line breaks sighs from the gone so when we read the first line before that line break we're thinking we're being carried by the wind but actually we're not being carried by the wind it's the sighs from the gone that are being winged to us so the winds are taking the sighs of from the gone now the gone is written in capital letters so I, I straight away think it must be the dead and maybe he was thinking of his wife chronology is not a great issue I, I've been not, probably not trying hard enough but it's been quite it's meant to be quite difficult to find a chronology of Hardy's poetry but then I went on the um, JSTOR and I found an article saying oh no actually it's quite easy and I'm going to supply it here and I went great JSTOR good job I'm a lecturer I'll download that then find out when, when this was written and have some context that's probably completely useless to me and um, I couldn't download it so there we go I couldn't log into JSTOR so that was annoying I love JSTOR anyway back to it so sighs from the gone nearer to dawn minute beats bring us so the winds aren't winging us we are being brought nearer to dawn by we're traveling on time we're not traveling on the wind we are, the thing we are born on is time and he says nearer to dawn minute beats bring us I love the idea that time is a kind of music minute beats you know each minute is a boom boom and we're traveling on this rhythm of time I say so so nearer to dawn minute beats bring us when there will sing us larks of a glory waiting our story further and on and on so when we the lark will sing in the morning but it will be singing of us it'll be singing of us and our our story larks of a glory waiting our story um interesting isn't it so glory awaits but it needs to hear our story even if our story is miserable um that glory can only be flavored by our by our loss further and on and on 
further anon anon is is you know almost there coming soon anon if they had trailers then uh, <laughs> over time for films they would have said anon coming soon the final the final stanza doff the black token don the red shoon write and retune vile strings broken now okay before i get on to the final lines of the poem i had a bit of trouble i don't know what a black token is um i looked it up and red shoeing is is red shoes i got that anyway because i've read that in ballads shoeing is a term used in ballads so doff the black token that means whatever the black token is you take it off and then don the red shoeing put the red shoes on um right and retune vile strings broken so before i get onto this lovely idea that vile strings you know you can write if you it's a lovely image that follows this but let's go back to doff the black token i don't know what doff the black token means as i said i looked it up and um and and i mainly got stuff to do with the, the idea of token tokenism tokenism as to do with ethnicity it's very hard to actually find anything about any archaic um definitions of that maybe you guys can tell me about it but my guess would be you know if we're doffing the black token it's got to be some kind of clothing hasn't it because you know we take off the black token and then don the red shoe put your red shoes on i i guess so could i say maybe that the um whatever the black token is i don't know but it's obviously something that's associated with grief and grieving thinking of victoria actually in the victorian era era so i'm thinking of his own grief over his wife emma maybe it was written after she died but i'm also thinking victoria when um she wore black and how the black became this after the death of her husband um she uh prince albert she went into mourning she wanted the country to mourn with her so she wore black for decades after his death and so i wonder if that's that that victorian idea of black being the color of of mourning and death and how um victoria wanted the whole country to mourn with her um after the death of the death of the, the great love of her life now don the red shoon i don't know if thomas hardy when he wanted to like you know thomas <laughs> did thomas hardy when he was sort of in the idea you know when he was feeling a bit frisky did he put his red shoes on his wife you know while his wife was alive she's like oh no he's got his red shoes on he's going to be out on a town tonight oh we'll be dancing in his red shoes thomas hardy's putting on his red shoes and he's ready to party i don't know i don't know but i'm guessing the red shoes are are a symbol of hope when we put our red shoes on so i obviously think of the famous famous film the red shoes where these ballet shoes seem to have some great supernatural power um but for now yeah don the red shoes right and retune vile strings broken so your violin strings strings are knackered you need to write them up you know string them up again and retune them and lord you know you're making a beautiful song again i think that's a lovely image now the words spoken in speeches of ruing pretty simple really you know what the very you know um my timeline on social media was full of speeches of ruing or uh, sound bites of ruing or tweets of ruing ruing so um i definitely know what that is and maybe people will when they become more hopeful will will delete those tweets i don't know so they didn't have twitter in thomas hardy's time allegedly and f- finally um the night cloud is hewing tomorrow shines soon shines soon that is tomorrow shine soon is lovely 
but the night cloud is hewing. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that lovely? The night cloud, those first glimmers of dawn. Now, that's a cliche, the first glimmers of dawn, isn't it? But the night cloud is hewing takes a cliche and turns it into something beautiful. The night cloud is hewing. Colour is creeping into it. Um, lovely. Thinking of a dark night as well, obviously. The night is always darkest before the dawn. Um, said by Aaron Eckhart's character Harvey Dent before he becomes an evil psychopath killer. So, uh, yeah. the um, I've just realised that the film The Dark Knight is a pun on the dark night is in the dark night of the soul you know like how the whole world has probably worked that out and i'm just like oh wait a minute yeah it's the dark night because he's a knight but it's also the dark middle chapter of the trilogy so it's the dark night as well Ooh, might watch that later let's look at it so so that's a sort of a pretty terrible analysis of the argument of the poem let's look at the form of the poem shall we oh sweet tomorrow um so the meter for a start let's uh let's have a look at the meter um oh sweet tomorrow after today there will away this sense of sorrow then let us borrow hope for a gleaming soon will be streaming it's like two beats and most of the time um it's a sort of it's there's two sort of envelope qualities here so like for instance after today it's a uh, trocky followed by an i am so it's sort of a, a stress syllable with an unstressed syllable and then it's immediately followed by an unstressed syllable with a syllable so it's like this boom and then two two unstressed syllables and then boom again so it sort of envelopes the line there will away this sense of sorrow so sorrow obviously has that unstressed syllable. Then let us borrow hope for a gleaming. Soon will be streaming, dimmed by no grey, no grey. Now, yeah. So I think it is the sense that the first line is quite stressed. So short lines because they're made of two stressed. Ultimately, each line is made up of two, mainly made up of two stressed syllables, and one final line which you see no grey I think is a spondy so that's two stressed syllables no grey but anon which is the end of a later line I think that's one stressed syllable but then maybe but I think we we have to treat it like a, a spondy so that's quite interesting because there's a nice use of form here so we have this because we have a beat at the beginning of a line and sometimes a beat at the end of the line as well. So a stress syllable at the beginning of each line, a short line of stress. It gives that impact, doesn't it? It feels like someone's got off their arse and stopped moaning about stuff. Because it, each line has this really punchy beginning. And, and there's the repetition also at the end of each line as well. So the, the last two words, or the last two syllables actually, of each of the so one two three four one two three four so it's an octave followed by a sort of repetition of the final two syllables of each um each fir the first eight lines so no gray gets repeated no gray and just because of the break in the line so sometimes i say to my like students think that some of my students i'm always using them as this example 
of how to get it wrong, which isn't true for them. But I think one people don't one thing people don't understand about rhythm and meter is it can change. So you can have the same words, and if you just change, put them in, in a different place in the line, the emphasis can actually change. Where they're stressed can change. And this is particular, so, so it's not that a particular word will always have the same stresses within it. It's very much about the line and the context of that word as well. So when we have these, these two lines at the end of each stanza with a repetition, so dimmed by no grey, no grey, I would say that actually the, there's, there's only, in those two syllables, only one of them is stressed in the original line, so dimmed by no grey, I think, I think that dimmed and grey, are stressed and by and no in the middle are not stressed but when low and grey are repeated in the next line the only way you can read it is by stressing both syllables so it becomes even more thumping your, uh, your, your fist on the table no grey it becomes even more insistent so further anon anon and then finally tomorrow shine soon shine soon maybe you see, you know, it could be argued that tomorrow shines soon, shines soon is a spondy there. It could be. I don't think it undoes what I'm saying about how each stanza ends with this repetition and an insistence. Um, and I think this repetition works because it's not him trying to convince himself. I'm trying to convince or trying to convince anyone. It's almost like that actually with the repetition, the poet believes it even more. That they have to say it again. That it becomes even more clear and becomes even more hard to doubt, I think. So it's not so much convincing himself, but more, I think, believing more, becoming more hopeful, which is what hope does when we borrow it, doesn't it? It, it makes us more insistent. It becomes, it takes something which is a little whisper inside of us and turns it into maybe a song or a shout. And I think that's how the, the form really helps the poem. Um, so a quick look at the rhyme as well. Oh sweet tomorrow, after today, there will away this sense of sorrow. Then let us borrow, hope for a gleaming, soon will be streaming, dim by no grey, no grey. It's almost like it has the use of envelope rhyme. So I've already said that the, the stresses almost envelope each line. In the sense, this is a hard stress in the, on each end of it sometimes. Um, whereas whereas the, the, we also have envelope rhyme. So the, the rhyme scheme is a b b a a c c a a and with repetition of a word so it's almost like a petrarchan sonnet obviously the lines are not in iambic pentameter they're in um dimeter but uh um and it's not even a dimeter that you can say is um iambic or trochaic because it's made of one of each so you can call it either if you like. You can call it iambic diameter with a trochaic, no, trochaic diameter with an iambic substitution, or you can call it iambic diameter with a trochaic substitution. I don't know if the first one gets first dibs, the first sort of foot gets first dibs to, I don't know. Just saying, don't write an essay on this, people. Don't blame me if you fail your degree because you've used me for your research when I've not done my research at all today myself. So it's like a sonnet, but the difference is, because one reason why we don't write a lot of Petrarchan sonnets today is because um, Petrarchan sonnets or Italian sonnets are written in Italian, and Italian language has more rhymes. Italian as a language has more rhymes than English, which is that mixture of Anglo-Saxon 
and Latinate languages such as Latin and French. So, and Italian. So he's got a little variation on that form where, um, the sort of within the envelope. So, uh, oh, actually, no, he really, he kind of messes around here. Sorry. I got that completely wrong. Can I go back over that again? I'm not going to edit this, but I just realised I must be, I'm that lazy, but I got the rhyme thing completely wrong. Oh, sweet tomorrow. A. After today. B. There will away. B. This sense of sorrow. A. Then let us borrow. A. Hope for a gleaming. C. Soon will be streaming. C. Look. Dimmed by no grey. I thought that was a return of A, but it's not. It's B. So it goes A, B, B, A, A, C, C, B, B. That's how it goes. Does that make no sense to you whatsoever? I've confused myself. And then it carries on. Yeah, A, B, B, A, A, C, C, B, B. So if we include the repetition, there are four B rhymes. And there are three A rhymes and two C rhymes. So each stanza is made up of three rhymes. So there's some playful variation. It's not really like a Petrarchan sonnet at all because of that. I just got suckered in by the first five lines, which do follow the same rhyme scheme as a Petrarchan sonnet. But then he quickly sort of abandons that to bring the B rhyme back in. And then, um, well, after the C rhyme. So the C rhymes only need two. C rhyme is like a couplet um, in the final sort of quarter well yeah the final in the uh sixth and seventh lines right so it's playful it's playful with the form um it's his own little form i can't think of a form this actually is um that existed beforehand and it incorporates aspects of a petrarchan sonnet the opening octave but then plays around with it i will say so the, the, it is interesting because because the rhymes are irregular it makes them more interesting it makes them less predictable in that sense we know it's a rhyming poem because we can hear it from the music of the poem but at the same time and so it gives that pleasure of rhyme but the pleasure of the rhyme is slightly deferred and played with and slightly unexpected because of the um i guess the uncommon rhyming scheme that he uses so it's a it's a it's a it's a poem that sounds i think it's got a music it's got a melody to it but I also think um, this poem works because it's a song of optimism from someone that we might see as a pessimist, someone who has written some miserable poems and, um, and some miserable novels. And I think it is because Thomas Hardy is the pessimist, because Thomas Hardy has lived through stuff himself and lost the love of his life, that when we hear this song of hope that he's had to borrow, that's what I find really interesting, because maybe that's that's maybe some of us are natural, naturally hopeful people, but, but Thomas Hardy had to borrow his hope because he's not naturally cheerful, I don't know. Although when he puts his red shoes on, oh my God, he's a bit of a live wire then, a bit of a demon on the dance floor. But when he's not wearing his red shoes, maybe he borrows his red shoes, I don't know. So yeah he's not a naturally we we don't associate associate him with hopefulness and i sometimes because you know i don't want to sound too cynical but eternally hopeful people can be really annoying can't they they can really get on your nerves and they can strike you as blinkered whereas when a pessimist is hopeful we find it a bit more believe you know when we hear hope from a pessimist we sort of think to ourselves Oh, something could be something could be going up on it could be a nice day tomorrow then might be very nice maybe things aren't that bad when this miserable sod tells me things are going to get better i sort of believe him rather than some someone who farts rainbows sort of 
traipsing around me going don't worry believe in yourself so i don't know i did an american accent there but you get me so actually this, this miserable cornish dude i think when he starts getting cheerful i'm thinking wait a minute something must be in the wind something must be in the wind or someone sprinkled something in his porridge or uh, he put on his red shoes by accident i don't know it's one or the other now I think that's enough of my dodgy analysis of this poem. I hope it helped. I hope, I ki- I hope I've entertained you so far. But I am going to um, use this moment to, um, I think, stray off the beaten path and talk about pessimism, which means it's time for me to steer away from Thomas Hardy and steer towards a man who perhaps was the optimist, the eternal optimist in his own way. Um, yeah, I think he really was. There was one or two moments in his wrestling career when he betrayed a man who had lost everything, but he still seemed full of vigour and energy even when he did that. Um, so uh, it's time to step away from Thomas Hardy and call in the services of Mr. Ric Flair because we are about to wander off on one, which is an acronym of... Thank you very much, Ric Flair. There's a friend of mine called Selena Godden who's an amazing poet and she reads a lot of rallies and um, she has enjoyed a great popularity but she is entirely deserved as a brilliantly talented individual and as a very hard-working individual as well. And she has a poem called Pessimism is for Lightweights and I um, I understand why that poem stirs people up and I think it's a very well-written poem that actually is the kind of poem that we, I think, Serena does not run around Selena does not run around farting rainbows like the aforementioned American person I might have been insulting there uh, she's kind of a you know she she's her poetry can be deep down and dirty as well um, so that makes her more believable when she speaks about optimism I think but um, I don't think pessimism is for lightweights on two counts so first count is um lightweights has anyone um i don't know why lightweight is always used as a pejorative has anyone ever watched a a lightweight boxing fight have you seen the work rate of the people that we call lightweights you watch two heavyweights and it sometimes is two very big guys just walking slowly trudging about a ring throwing about four or five punches around and um and then they get that and then every now and again one of them hits the other one on the chin and he drops like a sack of potatoes oh yeah i'm reeling out the cliches whereas a lightweight you watch them and it's like they they do make these little like like the when the heavyweights hit each other it does have this kind of thudding noise and when the more of the featherweights actually than the lightweights but when these guys hit each other you do get that little noise but anyway if you watch them these guys work they have a work rate so whenever i we, we kind of say this is you know lightweight is a pejorative term i don't agree with it because i actually watch boxing and i can see what lightweights are capable of and uh they have they have a massive work rate you know what i mean they're, they're full of energy and they're full of aggression and um if anything I'd, I'd view it as a compliment if i was called a lightweight so the other thing i disagree with about the term pessimism being for lightweights is that um i find that a group of philosophers from greek and roman times called the stoics to be very helpful um, my favorite stoic is a stoic called epictetus and epictetus was um so the famous the most famous stoics you could say are marcus aurelius who was the roman emperor or the philosopher king as people called him then there was seneca who was uh the, the, the man who was um, the teacher of nero and then he was commanded to uh, take his own life and then there was epictetus who was a slave and 
um, while he I think he was freed during his lifetime he was a slave and there's a book of his called the Enchiridion which I really love reading and the Enchiridion was more written by one of his students and so it is a very condensed sort of summing up of his teachings and that's why I quite like it it's very punchy and straight to the point now so the Stoics what reason why I mentioned those three is because they all seem to come from different backgrounds obviously Marcus Aurelius he was the bloody man who ruled the world so uh, most powerful in the man in the world but being having stoic ideology and teachings a very wise man and then we have Seneca who was a sort of teacher so maybe a bit more highborn but not quite ruler of the world maybe I don't know more upper middle class if that's such a thing existed in Roman times and finally we have Epictetus who was pretty much at the bottom of the barrel and was was um you know someone who was a former slave so they they sort of if there's such a thing as class boundaries in the in Rome and I think they had something a bit more severe than class boundaries to be fair then um Epictetus was at the bottom and I guess Marcus Aurelius was at the top now the Stoics are characterized by a few things um they are seen as gloomy as well um because they 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 ultimately they're 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 I I'd say you could sum up Stoic philosophy by saying if you want to have a happy life temper your expectations <laughs> expect the worst I think is what they would say and um, and that sounds counterintuitive so the idea of pessimism being for lightweights um, for instance they would practice negative visualizations so you know that there's a whole self-help um, industry around positive visualization where you imagine your dreams coming and then the alpha waves from your brains uh hitch a ride on these uh on these quantum state electrons and make them manifest in the world right do not believe any of that so what we know about people who practice positive visualization and constant positive thinking is they're actually the most miserable people <laughs> i can't remember where but there's meant to be research to back this up which is if you're always expecting the best, if you always go through life expecting everything to work out just fine for you, you will be miserable because life won't do that. No matter how much rubbish you read about how you can make something happen with your thoughts, don't work like that, sunshine. And read some proper quantum physics because you don't understand what an observer is called when we talk about the, uh, um, I think it's Heisenberg's indeterministic principle. I can't remember. Anyway, so... Um, I probably got that completely wrong and the, and the physic, physicists are scoffing at me. So they would practice, the Stoics would practice negative visualization. They would imagine the worst things happening to them. Um, they would imagine their spouses um, and children dying. They would imagine that their lives being torn away from them. They would have visualized the worst things, their worst fears every day. The irony being that this made them, I'm not saying this works for everyone right i'm like if you if you do this and you end up making yourself massively depressed don't sue me but it seemed to work for the stoics and in some ways it works for me why does this work well number one and i find this the least convincing one actually which is if we visualize the worst things happening to us when they happen to us they don't hurt us as much um and i don't i feel mm, you see i don't the reason why i don't sorry my foot is brushing something beneath me the reason why i don't agree with that entirely is because i think you're not really living are you if you're just living in a perpetual state of of preparing yourself not to be as hurt by the worst things happening so i'm not as into it for that but one thing i am into which is if you visualize the worst things happening to you you appreciate the good things more and i think that is true 
So if you do visualize, you, we know this ourselves. When something terrible has happened and then we get the simplest reprieve from it, we feel amazing. Um, when we're in pain, in physical pain, and then we get a moment when the pain vanishes before it maybe comes back again. Maybe we've got, I mean, I don't know if you've ever had food poisoning, but I've had it where my stomach goes through these cycles where one moment you're bent over and just, and then the next moment it sort of stops. And those moments when it stops are the most beautiful, blissful moments. Now, I don't have food poisoning right now. My stomach feels okay. I'm actually on antibiotics right now, so I've not eaten for a little while. But um, but but apart from my stomach being a bit empty, feels all right. Now, I'm not filled with joy about that as I would be if I was bent over, struggling in pain, and then having a moment when the pain stops, and me thinking, oh my goodness, this is wonderful. And I think that's what negative visualization helps with. I think it helps more, actually. So if you cuddle your child at night, and you have visualized the possibility of losing your child to what, in whichever way you might lose your child, it's unthinkable, it's terrible. But then you realize that your child is in your arms, and you are both alive in that moment, and it is wonderful. And I really think that does work. So I do understand that pessimism can be for lightweights because pessimism perhaps can stop us striving for greater things in our life. But I also think pessimism is kind of for heavyweights or, well, no, let's just say it's for lightweights for people who understand boxing. Sure, it's for lightweights because people who confront the things that can make them miserable tend to have more of an appreciation of the things that are around them at that moment. So... Um, apart from my meditation and stuff, um, but I do, I do think about the Stoics and ultimately what I think the biggest uh, negative visualization wasn't, it wasn't just about being gloomy. I think the most important thing about the Stoics is that they said ultimately, so Epictetus in particular said that what can you control and what can't you control? Um, do not be miserable about the things that you cannot control. Anything that's out of your control, like an election result, you cannot control how other people are going to vote. You cannot control how other people are going to behave. You are going to, you cannot control how other people can interpret your speech and turn it against you. You cannot control what anyone thinks of you. <laughs> you cannot control what any other person in the world does and you cannot control what any other person in the world thinks, no matter how Machiavellian you might be. Now, I think um, so what what is there? What can you control? Now, this is where the Stoics say, and there might be some, you know, we might, neuroscience might overturn some of this, but they, you have control over your virtue. That's what the pessimists can say. You can control how you react to things. You see, that's that's a bit, There, I think there are lots of occasions when people, people obviously can't, you know, without medication or help, people can't control how they react to things. But I, I appreciate the sentiment it's meant. A lot of us do actually have more control over our reaction to the world than we think we have. That's what I'll say. I'm not saying it's everyone. I'm just saying a lot more people probably could, through different techniques, um, respond better to bad things happening to them. So, um, so yes, that was one aspect of Stoicism. So Stoicism is, but it's also about how there's your virtue. That's what you can control. That's what you are in charge of. If you have your virtue... If you have your own way of looking at the world and your own code of life that you can stick to no matter what, then that will lead to your happiness because you will not place your happiness in things that you have no control over. That's ultimately emphasis of Epictetus's school of Stoicism. And I feel that way about living in a democracy and I feel that way about, you know, worldly events and I feel that way about my own career and stuff like that. I cannot control 
I can only control the things that I make. I can only control the things that I do. And to a certain degree, actually, because of meditation and because of other exercises that I do, I can control how I respond. I can, like, you know, I I used to think I was an angry person and I used to think it was natural for me to respond angrily to things. But now I don't really respond angrily to things that much anymore. Not a lot. Literally, I don't get angry for months on end. And then when I, I have a little moment of getting angry about one little thing and then months again I don't get angry so and that's made me I'm going to talk about anger another time actually because um I think it's I, I haven't got time to talk about it now but I can talk about why anger is a negative thing and how we always try to justify anger in one way or another but I'm not going to talk about it now thank you for listening I'm not going to edit this podcast at all so you're just going to get it in its glorious uncut state I think I'm going to manage one more podcast before the end of the year and then if I have time I'll record a bonus episode which will be one of my little toolbox episodes. And so there'll probably be at least a one week break with this podcast, possibly a two week break. So next week's might be the last one of the year. But if it isn't, I might have had time to record another one, which won't be me looking at a poem. It'll be me maybe saying, just giving out instructions or advice on how to read an old poem for yourself. Um, thank you for listening. Um, oh yeah and also Paradise Lost Book Club I am going to start this last podcast in January and last podcast next year in 2020 because there's 12 books in Paradise Lost by John Milton every, at the end of every month I'm going to go over a chapter from Paradise Lost and I invite you to read so Paradise Lost will be read book by book throughout the whole year and I will podcast about it at the end of each month and I invite you or anyone else to read it with me and um and and share your thoughts with me about it and i might incorporate those into the podcast too so thank you for listening if you want to do me a favor share it on your social media leave a nice review on itunes um if there's any thumbs up p type stuff you can do with it do that and if you want to tell a friend about it in your physical day-to-day face-to-face interactions and that would be lovely too other than that um whatever has happened in your life whether you've had an election and whether you're happy or sad about it or whatever um there is always cause for hope no matter what um love to everyone in this country who voted in the election no matter what box they ticked have a good one see you next week bye bye